So this is my family in 1988. That's me, wearing the pink, the magenta. I was a trendsetter back in the day. These are my two parents, my dad, my mom, and on the right, my older sister. She's two years older than me. And here we are, dressed up, and if you, I don't know if you can see this, but it says Olin Mills. I don't know, if they, they like the monopoly of like the, the family portrait day. We're dressed up, we showed up for that classic family portrait day with that blue background. How many of you have a studio family portrait like this, like in your house, like on a mantle or fireplace or somewhere embarrassing? Everyone gets dressed up with their, their best and their big, well, some of them smile. That's okay, they'll put that up. I have this chart, this like, uh, what is this called? X and Y axis thing, what is this called? Graph? Where the, the older you are and the more Asian you are, the less likely you are to smile in a photo. And so uh, I'm pretty sure it's, a, it's not just a hypothesis, it's real. Anyway, so the family gets together, it's paid for by a professional, it's edited on a computer and they're slapped onto a canvas and then a family will put it into a special room, a special place where it's meant to display like, oh, here we are, the big happy family, so your guests can come and look, oh, it's such a nice family photo, like this is everybody. Here we are two decades later, still the happy family going strong. Now children leaving adolescence, young adults, two parents past middle-aged. The year goes on and the family portrait gets replaced in its spot on the mantle or the fireplace or above the piano or wherever, just a little bit older, but still with that same purpose. Everyone should be smiling and look nice and you should see that this is our family, all buttoned up and happy. For the guests who visit your home, it's a snapshot, that hopefully a warm, fuzzy feeling, seeing each family member. Maybe if you've known the family, you get to see how they've grown, or at least the kids. But for the family, these photos tell a way bigger and more complex story. Let me tell you the story I see when I look at these pictures of my family. The one on the left, what I see are two immigrants in their early 30s. What I see are two young parents just figuring out this whole parenting thing, not just figuring out the whole parenting thing, but of kids who are born in a country that's not their home. What I see are two young adults who don't speak a lick of English, working blue-collar jobs, grinding it, so that hopefully the two kids that are there will be able to receive the benefits of the American dream and make it worth it that they flew across the world to be in this new place where they don't know anything about the culture or can't even speak the language, hopefully that their three-year-old daughter and their one-year-old son would reap the benefits of all that sacrifice. The photo on the right, I see a bigger picture, a bigger story on this one too. I see a man who's still pressing on and working hard for his family, but worn out. I remember this day specifically when I got dressed up and drove to the site where we took the photo. This was during a season where my dad, he was working the graveyard shift for many years. He didn't always in his career, but he decided to because he never had a college education. He couldn't get a great job. He never made tons of money. And in order to make good money to support our family, you get paid time and a half or more if you work at night. So he did the graveyard shift for many, many years. And so he worked, got home, didn't sleep, dressed up, and then drove to the photo only to hopefully get back in time to sleep a couple hours before going to his next shift at like 7 or 8 p.m. If you can't zoom in, I did on my computer. His eyes are bloodshot in this photo. I also see a woman who has known nothing in her young adult life in her 30s, 40s, and now her 50s, working 70 plus hour weeks, never worked less. I see two children of immigrant parents who were able to go to college because of all their parents that did for them. 
I see a, a nurse who's working in the hospital that she actually was born in, and I see a soon-to-be pastor, not quite yet, who God in, intervened in his life and called him to ministry and also said, Danny, lose the hair gel. <laughs> I said, Lord, your servant is listening. Got rid of it all. The next time uh, that y'all go home, take a look at your family portrait if you have one. Because for the guests, for us, if we were to walk in, we would just see something nice. Oh, my God, that you, you know, that was so cute. That was you 5, 10, 15 years ago, whatever. But for you, it's still, it tells a much, much bigger story. The story that I think mine and probably yours tells a little bit, too, is that there's no such thing as just finding or joining or falling into just becoming a happy family. Happily families are not poofed into existence. They're definitely not created through marriage. Uh, married couples will tell you that. And parents will definitely tell you that just by childbearing, you are not creating a happy family. It doesn't just happen like that. No, what I see, and maybe what you would see if you looked at your family portrait, is that for families to last, to experience happiness and meaningfulness, it means that they were fought for. They were cried for sometimes, worked hard for, sacrificed for, created in somewhat of a crucible of the labor of love. There's no such thing as just being a happy family. You don't just arrive there. And you can't just stay there, even if you did get there somehow by some sort of loving sacrifice. You're not grandfathered in permanently because you crossed, crossed some threshold. You get there by love, driving and pushing through the difficulties of life, leading you on to the next decade until the newest family portrait replaces the older one. Happy families are made through commitment and love. And the same goes, the same, same thing goes for a spiritual family. The same goes for a congregation, for a church. And that's what we are. We're a spiritual family. I want to pause here for just a moment, just in case, and because I'm kind of afraid that 90% of more of you may have just heard me incorrectly when I said that we're a spiritual family. So let's just make sure that we're all on the same page. I think many of you might be hearing some version of one of the following. We are a really close-knit community. Maybe you heard me say, we're a congregation that wants to be real friends, not just acquaintances. Maybe you heard me say, we're a church that values not just showing up on Sundays and booking it out the door. No, you spend 15 minutes mingling in the lobby and learning people's names before you book it out the door. Or maybe you just heard pastor speak. That's what we do on stage, right? We, you know, the idealistic, uh, motivational, inspire the troops language, the ch Christian jargon that's meant to warm all of your hearts of the listener. It's, it's the, maybe you heard the pastor just doing good public speaking principles. You, you should be, you know, fancy and warm and fuzzy with your words. But that's not what I said, and that's not what I meant. So let me say it one more time. We're a family. One bound by our spiritual commitment and our identities in Christ. Have you ever noticed how much familial language is used in the Bible all the time? We are children of God. He is our heavenly father. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. 
We are brothers and sisters. It's all familial language. These are not nicknames. These are actual identifying titles. See, this month, we're going to be in a sermon series that we're, called, we're calling Big Happy Family. And the sermon series, don't be uh, um, you know, tricked by it. It's not about how we're going to spend four weeks talking about how Cornerstone is so awesome, we're the best, we're so warm and fuzzy. That's not the point, to say that Cornerstone made it. Rather, the series will be on how we take God's word and the call given to each and every one of us to do our part in not only becoming, but being and staying a happy, bound together, united, spiritual family. And like I said, right, there's no such thing as just being one or staying one. It takes commitment. It takes love and persistence. It takes responsibility from each family member. And that's what we want to talk about these four weeks. And so today, I want to set the foundation. What does scripture even teach us concerning what our relationship to each other really is? Why is there so much familial language in the Bible? Why are we calling each other brother, sister, father? You know, all these children, these words that are rooted in family. I want to start by pointing out the fact that this familial language is not just a friendly way to address each other. Again, it's not a nickname. It's a real identity marker. So for that, we're going to turn to Matthew 12. And we're going to see the true nature of our relationship with one another through the eyes of Jesus. Starting from verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, hey, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I imagine that for most of us, what is on the top of our list of the most important things in your life, top three, top five, maybe top one, you're probably going to say, my family. My family is very, very important to me. Family is obviously a high priority for most of us. But there are certain cultures and times where the prioritization of family exceeds just it being like a really important thing. There are some cultures and times where it's like everything, like all-encompassing thing. And that was definitely the case for Jesus' original audience here, the crowd that they were identified as, the ancient Jews. Family wasn't just something that was just, oh, it's meaningful, it's on the top of my list. It went beyond that. Family is where the Jews found their status, their worth, like their identity was wrapped up in who their families were, who their, what their ancestry was. It wasn't just one of the top things, it was the top thing, it was everything. And so I imagine, if that's the case in this culture, Jesus' original audience, that when he said this, when this experience happened, those people in the crowd must have been a mixture of like shocked maybe confused, like, aren't you the rabbi? How can you be misleading us? Maybe offended, right? Your mother and brothers are outside waiting for you. When they are waiting for you, you, I don't care what you're doing, you get off your bum and you walk over there and you honor them. You stop what you're doing and you go and you take care of what comes first, your family. They were probably really offended at his actions and his words. But as usual... 
Jesus doesn't do what the culture expects. In in fact, he's par for the course Jesus, right? He always does, like, it seems like the opposite of what the culture expects. It's what they never expect. He disregards his family, waiting for him outside. And instead, he says, those who do the will of my father are my real family. It shouldn't be a surprise to us if, if, you, if you have some sort of relationship with Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, if you learned about him. We, we shouldn't be surprised to find him pushing back on some sort of human understanding, pushing back on our cultural expectations, pushing back on the worldly lens with which we understand and view life and ourselves. He does that all the time. He's always pushing the boundaries. He's always saying, you're looking at it this way. No, it's this way. He doesn't see life the way that we as humans do. He wants to expand our vision to see as God does. And right, now, right here in this story, what he's doing is trying to expand our vision and understanding that the bond that we have in the community of faith is way bigger and deeper than we realize. In fact, he goes so far to say that bond that the community of faith has together is greater than your blood relatives. See, ancestry or lineage or shared blood, like they're my flesh and blood, like that sentence. That's what we as people often hail as the greatest unifying bond between people here on earth. Nothing comes stronger than being blood family. Jesus saying, I don't know. Actually, I disagree. He's saying, in in my kingdom, there is something more important than shared blood in your family. There is something more unifying than the family and the parents that you happen to physically be born into. And that might be weird for us to hear. I imagine that just like the original audience, yeah, we're not 2,000 years ago Jews, but maybe for us, we've been taught that family comes first, most important thing, it might be jarring to hear, but I wonder if it's not that as, as foreign to us or radical as it may seem. Like I said, I grew up here in Massachusetts, and I grew up on a town where there were very few minorities. Like my school, the, my grade school was 94% white, and so I really stood out. And so there were always a lot of cultural differences that I had to explain to my teachers and to my peers. You guys eat seaweed? Like, yeah, it's really good. Try it here. You know, the reluctant to bite. You know, things like that were happening all the time as I grew up. They just didn't make sense. And one instance that happened a lot would be, uh, like, a, like, for example, let's say we were away for Thanksgiving break. We come back, and the teacher says, hey, everyone, hope you had a good break. Let's go around in a circle and share what you ate for Thanksgiving dinner and who you ate with. And everyone would go and turn around and take a turn. And my turn, I'd say, oh, I had Thanksgiving dinner with my family, my immediate family, and my extended family. And there were about, like, I don't know, 40 people there or so, and I would just explain my thing. And then, you know, maybe a question would be like, wow, you have, that's a huge family, like, your family is that big? I'm like, oh, no, actually, not exactly. I have one aunt and three uncles. And then how did it end up being 40 people? Well, there's a bunch of people there that my parents, that I call this word samchun or samchun and, and emo. Like, well, what does that mean? Oh, that means in Korean, that means uncle and aunt. But actually, they're not actually my uncle or my aunt. So what are they? Oh, well, the one samchun is like, he's my dad's friend. Okay, and then one of the emos is my mom's really close friend. So they're not your uncle or your aunt. No, 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 no. But you call them that? Yeah. And so you had family Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah. 
Like, and, and I was trying to explain this. Like, it, there's no blood relation, but I call them that anyways. Wait, why? I don't know. My parents just told me to call them that. And they're always there at the family gatherings for some reason. Anyone else have this experience? You have all these important people in your life who show up at the very exclusive, important holidays that are meant for family members, really, really close people. You grew up calling them auntie or uncle, maybe samchon or emo. You know how to address them that way. In fact, it's automatic to you. You see them as a family member, but they actually don't share any blood with you. There's no connection. The connecting point is not your ancestry, your biology. You're spending Thanksgiving dinner, a really important meal together, and your parents are telling them to call them by these familial titles because your family, even though you don't share the same grandparents. See, Jesus is speaking to an audience who prizes blood and ancestry, lineage. And he's pushing back, expanding their vision. Your truest identity is not in who your ancestors are. It is your identity as a child of God. He's saying, you guys think the most important bond of family is rooted in your DNA and that you have shared DNA. No. It's shared faith. It's shared citizenship in the kingdom of God. It's rooted in the fact that now you're all adopted into the same family and therefore you are brothers and sisters. The gospel at work has created a spiritual family bonded deeper than our DNA. See, Jesus flips our understanding, and it matters. It's got to matter to us now, 2,000 years later, because we need to understand what's happening right now. What are we doing when we gather here on Sundays? What are we doing when we sign up for a small group and meet, just drive to some stranger's house on a Wednesday evening to talk about the Bible? What are we doing when we, when we reach out to each other and we get coffee? What's happening in those moments? I think if we look through a worldly lens that Jesus is saying to expand, we just see it as the exercise of religious duties. Maybe we just see it as another community. It's a social group. I have my work friends. I have my church friends. I have my gym friends. I have my high school friends. Maybe it's just one of those. And it is. It's not a bad thing. But at its core, what we're doing is family gathering. This is a family gathering that happens every Sunday. We are siblings gathering to honor and revere our heavenly Father. We are spiritual families seeking to live worshipful lives and discipleship and faith on the same journey. This is family life if we see it through the eyes of God. We're like the siblings, the aunts and uncles and cousins, but not actually in the literal way. The way that, that you know, the people are taught, or just like, you know, or the way that you know, they were, it was confusing to my classmates of like, why you would invite those people to your Thanksgiving dinner when it's only meant for family? No, you still are regardless of the blood relation. And I think in order for this church to not only live out our calling, but to live out our giftedness and to be our true self is when we realize and have the shift from seeing each other just as church friends and understanding that you're spiritual family. See, Cornerstone, we were planted in 2004, so we're approaching our 20-year birthday. From 2004 all the way today, something that's been really special about this congregation is that we're really darn good at being friends. 
excellent. I have so many of my friends in ministry who are jealous of how often we love to spend time together. You know, my friends are like, oh my gosh, I could, like getting people to sign up for a small group? Like, yeah, right. Like, people are booking it out the door on Sunday. They don't want to talk to anybody. Like, it's just get the Sunday fix and get the heck out of there. And I'm like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have that problem. We love spending time together. We love hanging out, playing games, watching movies, doing all these activities. But there is a big difference between a community of church friends who likes to spend time together and really likes each other with a spiritual family who's on joint mission together, who's doing life together like Jesus did with his disciples, and who more than like each other, love each other as family. There's a difference. And I'd love for this generation of Cornerstone to continue this legacy of connect, connected community, but in a concerted effort to ensure that our bond is the result of us seeing each other the way that Jesus is saying we truly are to each other as family, not just as friends, not just as church buddies, not just as acquaintances or small group members, not just as co-volunteer on the church ministry that you signed up for, but as authentically brother and sister. So that's what our, our mission is this month, to flesh out how we do that. And for today's purpose, we've got to start at the foundation. And so I want to encourage all of us to do these two things from here on out. Church, let's start seeing each other as authentically real, true family. And then let's start loving each other that way. Let's see each other, not just as friend or, get this, stranger, but as an actual family member. And then let's start loving each other in that way. Back in year 2000, it was the first time I ever went to Korea in my life. Like I said, I was born here in Massachusetts. So I first went back in 2000. It was a while before my mom had, I mean, it was the first time actually my mom had ever gone back since she, we, she immigrated to the States. And I was a kid there. I remember being there, you know, and, and we spent a really long time, like uh, almost a whole summer. It wasn't just like a one week, two week trip. And my most predominant memory was we just traveled the whole country pretty much, like not just the city, like all over the place, seeing lots of people. People who I was told they're my relatives. I don't remember, I don't really remember much about who they were. All I know and I remember is just going to all these random people's houses and just traveling around and around the country. And you'd think as a young kid, I would have hated that trip because I was the age where all I wanted to do was play Game Boy. I didn't want to talk to these adults. I don't care about these people. And you know, the age where you're always whispering in your mom's ear, like, are we gonna go home? Like, I was that little kid, just like waiting to go home. Like, you know, my Game Boy ran out of batteries. These people don't have AAA to replace so I can play Pokemon more. You know, like, I was that age, bored, bugging the parents who wanna have a good conversation, catching up with their old family. But actually, I loved that trip. And I loved going around. Because every time I left someone's house, I was richer. <laughs> I made all this money. I was like, I, I would just think about it. And we would go to a place, I would be all rich. I have all this cash in my pockets. And my mom would be like, okay, so tomorrow we have lunch with this person and we have dinner with this person. I was like one of Pavlov's dogs. Like it was like a bing and ding. I was like drooling. Like no way I'm going to make so much money at this next person's house. Every time I showed up somewhere, I didn't have to talk to them. I could play Game Boy in the corner, but it was always the same thing. 
open the door, oh my God, and this big hug, and like, oh my God, look at you, I've only seen you in pictures, or, you know, like last time I saw a photo of you, you were a baby, and then here, sit down, and the best food that the country had to offer, eat this, eat this, are you full here, eat more, oh, we have dessert, just like constantly shoving things in front of me, and there's always an envelope that came out, don't tell your mom, and just, you know, like hiding it, and that's what we did, over and over and over again. Can you imagine a vacation you went to, or you went to now as an adult, where you get fed the best food, you get hugged and embraced, they compliment how great you look, I don't know if it was real, and got all this money. That's just what happened. And here's the thing, like I said, I don't remember any of them. I can't tell you who I saw. I don't know who gave me their money. Some of them housed us. We spent the night in their guest room or their living room. I don't know whose house I stayed in. Was that a cousin? Was it my mom's cousin? Was it an aunt and uncle? I actually don't know. I don't know them. I don't know anything about them. I don't know what their names are. I don't know who, where they are today. I don't know if they're alive anymore. I don't know whether they're a good person, whether we have anything in common, whether we would be close if we actually lived in the same country and go see each other often. There was no relationship, but it didn't matter. Clearly, the amount of time spent together wasn't the mark of an important relationship. Clearly, shared interests, commonality, didn't matter. Even language and culture and nationality, nope, didn't matter. I was the American kid coming to town temporarily. All the important things that we as people say, this is what makes an authentic friend and family member, none of them existed. The only thing that did was they saw me as a family member. So they emptied their pockets. They opened their homes. They fed me too much. They hugged and kissed and embraced me. Some of them cried for some reason when I was leaving the house. And I had no idea who they were. I don't know where they are today. Nor do they know where I am today, probably. They treated me with love and acted upon it completely because we had a bond. We had zero relationship with each other. I already made that clear. But we had a bond. We were family. What if? What if the church started seeing and loving each other as family members? What if we started seeing and then loving each other as family members. How much would that transform the church? How much would that transform individual lives? How much would that transform communities? How much would that transform the world, frankly? How much would that transform a newcomer's experience in showing up somewhere nervously into a place where it seems like everyone is friends and there's all these clicks? I don't know who to talk to, I'm leaving, I'm nervous, I'm uncomfortable. How much healing would this bring to people who are taking the risk of going to another church service because they believe they want to seek a relationship with God, but their last experience traumatized them because the community hurt them so badly. How much would this, like everything, just like be so different if it wasn't, I'm sitting next to a stranger, this is awkward. The power of familial love and acceptance transforms people's lives, and it did to yours and mine, because Christ Jesus, he's not 
related to me by blood or in anywhere or culturally or even we're on different, we were on different continents. I am not ethnically Jewish. But he adopted me into, the, or his work made the Heavenly Father adopt me and you into his family and therefore we are fully his children accepted. If we're taking Jesus' words here in Matthew 12 seriously, then here's what I conclude. There's a bunch of people sitting around you right now. Not just like this, this box, but are back there and around you on the other side. This is the, we talk to each other more side and the quiet side and all this stuff. Some of them are complete strangers. Some of them are acquaintances. Some of them are friends. Maybe some of them is your spouse or your family member. Some of them you met 30 minutes ago during meet and greet. And you're like, oh crap, I already forgot their name. Like, it's all a mixture of these people. But if we're taking Jesus at his word, these are your family members. These are your family members. I'm not saying, I'm not speaking pastor speak. I'm not trying to tug on your emotional heartstrings. I'm just trying to see Jesus at his word. This is your family. Let's grow to see each other and love each other that way. In closing, here are a few specific ways that I feel like we can do that depending on who you are. I don't always do this, but especially with the September hustle bustle, uh, I believe that there's three different groups of people in the room right now, and I want to address the three of you separately. First is the newcomers. Some of you are just passing by. You're just, you just visited a friend, or you had a wedding last night, and you're, you're heading to Logan straight from here, and you're never coming back. Some of you are new. You're new to Boston. You're starting a new school, a program. Maybe a friend brought you, or you Googled us, and you're thinking, I might be a part of the, you know, whatever. You're new in that whole realm. I want to encourage you in your church searching process or as you go back to your home church that you're flying to later this afternoon for this church hopping or shopping, depending on what you want to call it, is to make it a search of finding a family that you want to be a part of and bless, not just a religious organization that you want to be affiliated with. I want to encourage you, newcomers, to care more about the church's commitment to the bond of family than the skillfulness of the musicians. The types of songs they play, are they hymns and old school? Are they like cutting edge new stuff? To care more about the bond of family and that loving connection than the convenience of the parking or how close it is to a tea stop or what's the building like? How, how you know, like convenient is this commute for me? How skilled are the preachers and the pastors there? And by the way, I'm not knocking those things. I like those things too. They matter, sure. But don't make it primary. I promise you, those of you who are in church shopping mode, I promise you, your life, your joy, your, your faith, your discipleship will be so much better if your church shopping list number one is finding family not finding a good preacher, a nice YouTube and Instagram, and really good electric guitar solos. I promise you. Regulars, those of you who, you know, you're here. You show up on Sundays. This is your place. Been here for a little while. You're not going anywhere. You know, Cornerstone for the time being is your place of worship. Maybe you're in a place of seeing Cornerstone as just a really good friend if we were to take the analogy further. I want to encourage you to take that step to no more straddle lines where Cornerstone is my close friend to Cornerstone is my sister, my brother. 
to start taking ownership of this family and doing your part as a brother and sister, not just with your participation and your attendance, but by your love and your commitment. Getting more involved emotionally, opening up your life and your heart to others and so others can do that to you. I want to ask you to love us fully as an authentic family and let us love you in return that way too. We'll all benefit more, regulars, from your full commitment into this family of faith. And lastly, those who've gone through official membership, you old-timers, those of you who have been here five, six, however many years, those of you who consider yourself, you know, the old folks here at Cornerstone. Whether or not you're a parent, I'm sure you've been in a conversation before where you've heard parents talk about the favorite age of their kids that they miss, right? So there's the, oh my God, like, no, 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 no. Two years old is like the best age. Like, it's when they, like, they're starting to speak, but it's cute. It's like, instead of I love you, it's like, I love you. You know, like, oh my God, my daughter used to say that to me. I miss that age. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, that's a good age. But newborn, oh, like, I miss that newborn smell. I'm like sniffing the baby's head, right? Like, you know, and then, oh, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, like, that was cool. But like, when my daughter turned 11, when my son turned 11, then we had real, like, father-son dates and we played baseball. Like, oh, that was my favorite age. It's fine. We can all have our favorite age, right? And that's pretty cool. And, you know, parents will always have that fond memory attached to a specific season. But they never stop loving their children. Or it's not up and down based upon the age of your preference. They fully love their kid at every age, even if they might have favorites. Long-timers, official members, you probably have an age of cornerstone that you miss. Those are the good old days. Man, when we used to do this all the time. Remember when, oh, so-and-so was around? Like, oh, I saw pictures on my Facebook the other day. Like, oh, I miss those days. I had that too. It's not wrong. It's not bad. You can hold on to that and hold on to those memories and cherish them. But I want to ask you to love your family just as much today, even if it's a different age. Even if you think fondly of when Cornerstone was six years old. Remember this was happening? Do you love your church just as much now at a different age, in a different season? I want to encourage you to do that. Earlier, I mentioned that our bond is not about DNA about ancestry and lineage and blood. And I meant it, but actually blood was involved, just a different kind than what we like to think of when we say, oh, my flesh and blood. It's not the family blood that we like to talk about being the most important, powerful thing that unites us and unifies us. What unifies us in this way that does make it so much further and greater and more powerful is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was his work of shedding his blood on the cross. Jesus paying the price for sin. Jesus paying the penalty. Jesus taking sinners and transforming their entire identity, not into a sinner and enemy of God, but into a beloved child. And his work create, uh, allowing this adoption into the family and the kingdom of God to happen. Jesus winning the victory over death and sin for all those who would place, his faith, place their faith in him. Jesus and his blood unifying us as true spiritual family because of the good news.
Jesus is the one who let his human, you know, that type of blood, mother and brothers, wait outside. And he's the one who pointed at those inside, the disciples, to say, these are my true family. He's the one who said it, and then he's the one who paid the price of his life through his love and commitment and obedience to the Father to turn what he said into a reality for the rest of us. Friends, we believe that because of that gospel, our entire identity changed completely from the moment that we came to faith into never-ending eternity. And that has changed our relationship amongst one another too.